The 38th episode of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is with performance enhancement specialist and consultant in performance sport, Nick Grantham. I'm sure many people know who Nick is and the work he's done. And he came on the show to talk about his biggest lessons from working in football, how to show players the importance of building the fundamentals, and also his views and experience of pre-season. Big thank you to everyone that came out and attended our Leighton Orient Network meeting, especially to Michael for hosting and Ross Bennett for presenting. It sounded like there were some great discussions that went on down there, so thanks a lot to everyone who came out on a Friday evening. And we have now confirmed that we will. Our next meeting is back in the Northwest. We are at Preston North End, Deepdale, with Tom Little on Wednesday, the 31st of July. So if you want to come along to the meeting, head over to the website, footballfitfed.com, click on network meeting and events at the top, and you'll be able to get your ticket from there. It'd be great to see as many people there as possible, and please spread the word on the meeting to get as many numbers there as we can. Hope you enjoyed the episode with Nick. It was great to speak to him. I've listened to uh, many podcasts with Nick on. I mentioned the pacey one in the episode and uh, I really like the work that Nick does um, and he's a top guy as well. So I hope you enjoy the episode with Nick. Welcome to another episode of the Football Fitness Federation podcast. I am delighted today to be joined by Nick Grantham, who I'm sure many, who many people know who he is. But Nick, how are you? I'm very well, Ben. Thank you very much for having me on. I think my mum knows who I am and that's and my missus and that's about it, mate. I think there might be a few more out there, Nate. I don't know who you are, but <laughs> just kick us off, mate, with um, a bit of background on where you've been, who you've worked with, and take us up to current day. Okay. Um, so I, I left school at 16, because um, that's what you did when I, at my age. Um, worked in a bank and an insurance company was horrific at both of those jobs, to be fair. Um, sitting in a little sort of one by one meter by one meter cubicle wasn't wasn't for me, wearing a suit. Um and then at that time, I was a competitive in combat sports, and that's when I first started reading books about, I guess, sports science and nutrition, because I was trying to figure out how I could be a better competitor and how I could make weight, and um, kind of sparked my interest in, in sport. I didn't know you could go to university and do sport, but one of my um, sort of teammates was at, at university doing sports science, and, and that kind of got me back into it. So I went back to night school, um, did A-level over two years, got myself into university, first first person in my family to go to university, actually. Um, I think everyone thought I was just joking when I said oh, that's what I wanted to do. Um, went to uni, uh, did four years there, postgraduate, uh, after I did my undergrad, uh, and then started off working as a sports scientist, really, because strength and conditioning didn't exist. So I worked at the Lillyshaw Sports Injury and Human Performance Centre down in Shropshire. Um, it was kind of... It was probably one of the forerunners at the time. Most sports science support was taking place through universities, and this was a private company uh, set up to provide sports science and, and medical support to various governing bodies. Uh, it's kind of like a precursor to the English Institute of Sport. So I was very fortunate to work there. John Brewer was my boss. Uh, he's kind of like one of the names in, in sort of the history books of sports science in this country um worked there for a number of years with british gymnastics as their sports scientist and then kind of transitioning into the strength and conditioning world uh and then moved to england netball when that was probably when i had the first job title of strength and conditioning coach loved working with the the netball girls um and that that really was where i cut my teeth as a snc coach um trying to turn around the physical preparation of, of that squad um worked with them through Commonwealth Games and World Championships and then the English Institute of Sport came on board um, and whilst I loved working with netball didn't really ever want to leave because it, it was a great group to work with you, you do know that it's quite a small niche to work in there's only sort of four or five countries that are, that are decent and uh, I was working probably with one of the best and I didn't really want to go and live in Australia or New Zealand so um, I moved across the English Institute of Sport and that was probably uh, a really influential move because all of a sudden you're looking after a region of athletes sort of 150 to 200 within your region across 20 25 different sports so all of a sudden you be, you, you get exposed to a lot of different sports um able-bodied disability sport team sports individual um and that was you know really working as part of a, a multidisciplinary team as well with 
and, and at that time, the English Institute was just kind of hoovering up the best of the best in terms of support staff. So it was kind of a golden era to be involved there. It was, it was fantastic for my development. Um, and then 2007, made the decision to go out on my own, really, as a consultant. Um, I think I'd reached a point in that organisation where I felt I couldn't progress anymore within their structure um, at that time. And family reasons, we wanted to move up to be closer to my, my wife's uh, family because uh, obviously if you work in sport, you, you're disappearing off all, all over the place. So it's good that we had a base close to one of our families. So moved to somewhere I said I'd never live. I said it was the arsehole of the world. Uh, moved to Newcastle, uh, and it's a place I've probably fallen in love with and uh, can't see myself moving from, really. Um, and I've been based up here since 2007, working as an independent consultant in performance sport, really. Um, so primarily spent, I guess, 15 years plus working almost exclusively in Olympic sports and then for the last uh, six, seven years I've, I've had a foot firmly in um, professional football from national teams like the Chinese team, England age groups through to uh, championship and premiership uh, teams in, in more recent years. So I guess that's a kind of whistle-stop tour, Ben. Yeah, no, that's awesome, mate. But what have been, or who have been, some of your biggest career influences, Nick? Oh, um, that's, that's a tough one because uh, I don't want to leave anybody out. Uh, I'd probably group them into into categories almost. So definitely like family, family are like massive in terms of my parents, um, but also also my wife, who at the time was was my girlfriend at university, and I was thinking about going for jobs. And I wasn't going to apply because I didn't think I was qualified enough. And she was just like, just do it. Just just put your CV in, um, which is what I did for the first two jobs. And, and one of those came off. So I think definitely her for, for like, believe me in the early days and then just sticking by us during the last 20 years and uh, putting up with all the all the pitfalls that working in sport brings with it as well. Um, I think school massively, like my PE teacher, he probably doesn't really realize it. But Mr. Palmer, I think, was an absolute ledge. Um, and had a massive influence, and, and I think he, he just understood sport and what it what it could do for people. Um, and unbeknown to him, I know there was a we had a big athletics competition where we had where the school was competing in a, a, a sort of a finals up in Gateshead. So we travelled from Crawley to Gateshead, and I, I didn't even make the team, um, but somehow a reserve spot became available. I, I don't think a reserve spot even existed but I think he just got the fact that I'd been training every week and I was probably pretty rubbish at athletics but he's like do you know what you're going to be a traveling reserve and you're going to come up with us um and it was the best sort of two or three days going I didn't do anything when I got to Gates I just sat and cheered everybody on but I think he understood the impact that being part of a, a team and being part of a sport would have and that, that's kind of stuck with me uh through the years uh university wise Dave Kellett who was my um sort of uh significant sort of tutor at Chester when I was there big influence got me into my first sports science support projects working with with tennis um Claire Feasy and Lynn Booth um were, were both influential in that aspect as well um and then if we if we look at my sports stuff then it's someone like John Brewer I've mentioned already um Chris Barnes who I met in 1999 uh, in, in Florida at a conference and I sat myself next to him on a bus, uh, probably annoyed him. Um, but we've known each other now, just looking at that, like 20 years, uh, sort of dipped in and out of each other's profession, professional sort of lives, uh, probably more so recently than, than previously. Uh, Nigel Stockhill, people wouldn't know who he is probably, but uh, sports scientist, biomechanist who worked with England cricket, really influential when I first started working at Leashaw. There's like a bundle. Um, athletes, athletes are massively influential. Uh, um, and, and I think you don't realise how much of an impact they have, but I can think of each sport and there's a significant athlete from, from each of that sports that's influenced the way that I coach. Um, and then there's all the people like my colleagues who, whose books I read, who's, seminars I attend who's like local Starbucks I go to to have a conversation with them so um who, who come in that you know people like Vern Gambetter and um Brett Bartholomew Bill Knowles um Mark Verstegen they they come up as like your 
people that really influenced my my learning in the early years and now my contemporaries like um Jeremy Shepard's a massive influence um working out in Canada um Ben Rosenblatt's one of those annoying people that's so young but it's done so much uh, but he's he's an absolute brain um uh Brett Bartholomew I think I mentioned already and, and Duncan French you know Dunks like proper brain um who I sort of connected with when I worked at the English Institute of Sport um and he, he probably doesn't realize it but he's had a big impact on on what I do and how I coach so um there's like a ton of people. I guess they just fall into big groups. I haven't left people out. People would be annoyed if they listen to this and I haven't mentioned them. <laughs> no, I'm sure there's plenty, isn't there? It's just yeah. an indication of like how your career path has taken the, the path that it has, really, and the people that have been involved with it. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, often, I guess, if people are asked that, they try and go for like these big, well known names. But there's a lot of people that kind of fly under the radar, especially in the UK, that because because we're not writing books and selling dvd series people just don't think they're don't give them the credit that they're due but there are a lot of people that are working in the profession uh, at all different levels that um have massive impacts on on your career um so yeah it's not just the so sort of who are perceived to be the celebrities i guess which is a bit weird anyway because it's only bloody sports it's not it's not that big a deal yeah yeah that's it and, and what's your opinions nick so i wanted to ask you like Obviously, you've worked as a consultant in in performance sport, but also football, which is obviously what the podcast is based on. Yeah, see more practitioners now working within that sort of role, going into like consultancy rather than being solely employed by the club. Is that the way you see it going forward? Um, I think it would depend on who's setting up the, the the medical department, and I think it also depends on the perception of, of the value of. Uh, the the club really and they've got to be quite a a modern forward-thinking club to actually understand and appreciate the value that a consultant brings over sometimes a full-time professional so I know that that someone that I've worked with closely um, Mark Gillette over the last 10 to 12 years in in various sports and various teams he really sort of appreciates the impact that consultants can have you absolutely need to have your core staff that are full-time on the ground but particularly if you're working at a team that doesn't have a significant budget um i think you can sometimes get more value by by bringing a consultant in who is at a higher level has got a a, a more experience but you couldn't necessarily employ them full-time because you know what they would the, the sort of fee they would command would be unattainable but for a day a week a couple of days a week or a day a month to come in and be this sort of gray hair that can like find the issues and solutions very quickly um and and just almost signpost the practitioners that are in their day-to-day of how things could be done more effectively and efficiently i think the challenge for the organizations is is recognizing that just because you're not physically located at a desk in a building five or six days a week doesn't mean that the value is any less that you're providing that organization. And I know personally and, and working with other colleagues who are consultants, you, you tend to give over and above what your contracted hours are because you, you just the nature of, of the way that you work. So just cause you're not physically there doesn't mean you're not doing stuff behind the scenes. Um, so I think, yeah, if if clubs and departments are smart, they will look at how they can incorporate consultants into those teams um, in, in an effective manner. Uh, it's not for everybody, um, but, but I, I've enjoyed being a consultant for the last sort of 10 years plus. I know this is quite a broad question, but and you can sort of take it however you want, but what are some of your biggest lessons from working in football? Uh, um, uh, get just Make get ready. Bad. Yeah, get ready. Get ready for the chaos. <laughs> um, it, it is. It is unlike any other sport I've ever worked in. Um, in that it is such a fluid um, setup, and it the the I guess the budgets are so are so big, and the way decisions are made are very different to how I've operated in Olympic sports. Um, that's not to say that the world of Olympic sports is some sort of, you know, amazing place that 
always works really well. And I think that sometimes that, that was certainly my, my perspective before I started working in football. But I think it's just understanding that you are going to be in a chaotic uh, environment where decisions are made that are um, not always uh, for performance. It's, you know, it could be more a monetary based performance, I guess. Um, some of the lessons I've learned and the lessons that I'd pass on would be, even though it's chaotic and it's not an Olympic sport, you can still plan. So I think I heard a lot when I first came into sport or was looking at football from the outside of, well, we never know what's happening. You know, it's always changing. We've always got different players coming in. We've got a game every week, so therefore we can't plan. And I think that's kind of a bit of a BS and a bit of a cop-out. You, you can certainly plan. Um, and although you might get sacked uh, within three months, you should certainly be planning as if you're going to be there for another three years. Um, and even if you don't get to execute those plans, you should you should have that mindset. Um, and that's certainly something I took in when I first started working in, in football was this mindset of, okay, we've got some short-term objectives we want to achieve, but actually it's about next season and the season after and the season after. Um, so I think that's... That's one one thing. Uh, the other is like it's not about the gym, uh, and no matter, especially as a strength and conditioning coach, uh, a physical prep coach, that that realization that there's a reason why football players play football is because they like playing football. Uh, they don't necessarily like going to the gym. They they are increasingly finding themselves in the gym because they appreciate the benefits that that may have on their performance outcomes and how that may translate into pitch-based performances but ultimately they want to play football um and for a long time you know i felt like i was trying to get players in their headlocks and and get them into the gym and kind of forcing the issue uh and then the realization that actually that's not where they want to be uh so once you know that it's about making the connections between what happens out on the grass and what happens in the gym and trying to and trying to sell that to them in a way that that's acceptable um i think uh, other areas would be like just building that building those bridges between coaches and sports science and medicine teams I think um, you know there's still silos operating and, and there's still you know the coaches sit in one office at the top of the building the, the support staff sit in, the, in another office or separate offices down in the other part of the building I think um, you know it would be useful if communication was better and I've certainly seen with my with my time at England and the age groups is it works really really well in terms of the communication and it's kind of you know the coaching staff work hand in hand with the support staff and, and that's getting much better in terms of both sides understanding what they can bring to to the physical preparation of athletes um, and then finally which kind of links back into this idea about you can still plan is is making little changes so kind of nudging the culture along uh i think because professional football can be so volatile there is a tendency for practitioners to think right well i've, I've got to go in guns blazing lay my stamp on it and and like make radical changes from day one because if i don't i'm going to lose my job uh whereas i think what you've got to be is a bit more confident in your skill set and your abilities and like make small changes those small changes will build and build and and they're going to be more long lasting than the constant kind of merry-go-round that you see in, in some clubs and backroom staff where you know every year 18 months as a new staff member comes in all the old kit gets cleared out then the new kit comes back in and it looks totally different i think um this idea of you haven't got to make all the changes in the first first week that you start your job um you've got to make little subtle adaptations as you go through. One of those points, Nick, that you made in terms of building bridges between like staff members, what is it you think that when clubs do it well, like you said, with, with the, the age groups, with the FA, what do they do that clubs that don't do it so well don't do? Um, so I think, I think you've just got to have a, so both, both sides, coaching staff and, and, sports science and medicine staff have, have got to have a real sort of appreciation of what what the other people can, can bring to the, the table I guess um I think there probably has been a them and us and and you've had hangovers from 
previous eras where sports science wasn't um, a key part of performance. Um, so you may have coaches, managers and, and players that aren't used to working with that and embracing that side. Um, and equally, you then, you know, if you match that with a bunch of like dead excitable, uh, pushy sports science guys that are trying to thrust their ideas upon these these coaches and, and managers, it, it's not a marriage that's going to work very well. I think um, it, it's just trying to understand. Uh, some I went to a conference uh, with Red Bull and they talked about people having different maps of the world, and I think that that's quite a nice way of looking at it. Is the coaches and the managers will have a map of the world and the sports scientists and the support team will have a map of the world. It's usually the same map. It's just we are looking at it from slightly different points of view. So the terrain looks a little bit different. I think we just have to understand the points of view that we're, we're viewing that map and, and kind of in terms of building bridges, it's, it's meet in the same place. So trying to develop shared languages. Um, and I think probably the sports science has got to be better at engaging with the coaches um, and, and the managers and thinking about the language they use, the way they feed back information, um, the way they support their coaches and players is, is the key. Yeah, that's that's been a common thought on a lot of the podcast episodes that we've recorded with coaches is that, that a lot of coaches will have the technical knowledge and they'll be running, like they'll have the, the plan in place for a good programme, but then how you get it across is vital, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we've, we've probably done a, a pretty crappy job of that at times. And I think that's the same even when I worked in Olympic sports. You know, I remember the days when a, a team would go and get tested at a university and they'd run all sorts of batteries of tests and they'd get pretty much what looked like a dissertation in Times Roman numeral font. It was about 20 pages long. And the athletes just looking at it going, I have no idea what this means or says and it has no relevance to how I play my, my sport. So I think, you know, football is probably been guilty of that as well where we've come in with especially the amount of data that gets collected you know of, of producing really sophisticated insights or, or, that superficially looks sophisticated but actually not uh, communicating that in a way that is impactful on on performance and in a, in a coach's um in a way that the coach wants to work and each coach will be different as well uh you know there is this assumption that coaches don't understand the technical information that that's Again, that's a preconceived idea. There are a lot of coaches now that come through that have an insight into the, the technical aspects and of what we're collecting and how we're physically preparing and want to know that. So you can give them that information and there may be a cohort that are maybe not as open to it. So you don't just have to adjust the message and the way that you go about it. So yeah, communication is like absolutely key uh, to the whole, the whole process really. And I read on your website, Nick, you, you did put a blog out, didn't you, about um, like working with fundamentals with players. And I think this time of year is, is an int- well, probably just before this sort of time of year, before players go back to pre-season, it's an interesting time, especially on social media when you see the players <laughs> working with different practitioners all over the world, yeah. some things they get up to. But I wanted to ask you, like, obviously there's, there's great importance in the fundamentals, uh, working on, on the fundamentals with players, but... How can we as coaches or practitioners highlight the importance of that to players? I think, again, it comes back to this idea of sort of slow change. I, I had a player um, that for about a year, I don't, don't think he really spoke to me. I think he used to stick his head in around the corner of the gym, look at me and then flick me the Vs and then walk off. <laughs> um, and he was, ne- he was never horrible, but he's just like, I'm not doing this. And then, it actually ended up over the last sort of four seasons being a player that I had a, such a great working relationship with. And it's because he's like, look for the, and I asked him why last year I asked, I was like, why, why didn't you sort of do anything for that first season? He's like, I was just waiting to see if you were a dickhead or not. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for establishing trust and people understanding your background and what you do. And I, I've always been very careful not to go in and give it, oh, well, this is what I've done. This is who I've worked with. You know, this is, I'm amazing. You've got to listen to me. I just, I just kind of go in and, and kind of fly under the radar a little bit and let that process sort of 
happen slowly and people find out stuff about your background they they through conversations they find out who you've worked with teams they'll do their own digging around they'll ask teammates at other clubs um and i think that's then when people start to trust you and i think once they trust you um and have worked with you for a period of time then you've got more chance of influencing them on the decisions of what they do and, and how it works and you know there's always going to be bright and shiny things that are out there. There's always going to be uh, trainers that are quite shouty and looks attractive on paper. And, and, you know, it's about understanding that and understanding why your players may want to go down that route and then reflecting on the, the sort of support that you're providing, the environment that you're creating at the club and saying, well, there's a, there's a reason why they're going down that route, you know, so maybe we're not providing what they need here at the club maybe we can and, and make those changes or, or maybe we can't so uh, I, I, I like to sort of reflect on when I'm practicing I've had players at various clubs that have gone and worked with outside practitioners and, and we've taken different approaches um, to working with each of those um, so yeah I think it's just it takes time to build up that trust with your players once they've got that trust they'll listen to what you're saying about um, the importance of fundamentals and, and getting the basics right and then adding a little bit of the, the interesting stuff to keep them going. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because a lot of people would straight away, it'll get the backup straight away, wouldn't it, that they're going out and seeking these other practitioners. But you do have to ask yourself why, like you say, reflect on your programme and, and what you're putting out. Yeah, I think, I know when I was at Middlesbrough, um, you know, some players have had long working relationships with external support staff. Um, and we in our infinite wisdom are the ones that turn around and go, right, you can't, you can't see them. So like realistically, what's going to happen? They're going to see them anyway, or, or instantly that's going to create a bit of a block and a barrier. So I know working there, we actually embraced it and said, look, bring your, bring your guy in. Let's, let's work with him. You know, if they're going to come and spend a week, they can come into our facility. They can work with you. Let's see the programs they're putting together. We can talk to you about how we see things working. So I think, you know, often it's it's kind of em, embracing that and recognizing it and say, look, we accept that you see value in this practitioner. Um, let's see if we can work together. And, and I think I can think of examples where that's worked well, where athletes, not just in football, but in other sports, have had a, a key practitioner that kind of sits outside the system but liaises with you, and that works really well. I've also had uh, practitioners, external practitioners, that just do not want to engage, won't kind of tr- come into the facility or won't allow you into their facility, and, and it's that that's then the recipe for disaster. And there's normally a reason why that's happening. Um, but, yeah, I think it's important recognising how how they can fit in to, the, to what you're trying to do um, and rather than getting all pissy about it, you know, try and influence the change and influence what you want um, by by having some conversations with them. Yeah, I think that'll be good advice this time of year for practitioners as well to have a to sort of reflect on what they're doing and why they're reacting in that certain way. And I think you know, I can think of conversations that we've had going into the off season. Um, and, and you start having conversations with players about, okay, where are you going to be working? Who are you going to be working with? What are you going to be doing? And look, you have to recognise that these players are in their like, mid-20s, coming into their early 30s. They've been doing this sport for years and years and years. Do they really want to stay and train in the same gym that they've been training in all, all season? Or maybe it would be quite nice to go to Portugal or L.A., and see some different scenery and have a different voice. And maybe there's actually real benefit in that. So I think it's kind of trying to get in there early, right? Where, do, where are you going to go? Who are you going to be working with? Brilliant. I know that person, or actually I don't know that person. Let's, let's try and make some contact. Let's see what they're going to put in place for you. Fantastic. Here's your program. Here's where I think this can fit into what you're going to be doing out there. And I think it's about just trying to work with them rather than, you know, probably how I would have felt in the early days of, of kind of threatened and you can't be working with them. They're, they're not up to scratch. You know, um, I think it's, it's about understanding why the players want to go there. And, you know, particularly in the off season, I'm not as concerned because I'm like, do you know what, if it means that the players doing some work and it's, and it's 
you know, 90% of it is valuable and there's only sort of 10% that's kind of fluff and uh, the, the fun stuff, then, then brilliant. You know, in season, I get a little bit more nervous um, when you've got external practitioners working in isolation with, with players and not communicating with you because then you can be left picking up the problems going into a game that, that may have resulted from some sort of um, funky, funky training session that took place on a day off on a Wednesday yeah, and that's where that communication is even more critical, isn't it? In in an in-season period for monitoring the load and how much work they're going through. Yeah, yeah, I've I've definitely seen players that you know we think we've got a really good plan working with them, and then all of a sudden they're coming in, they've got muscle soreness, and it's a Thursday, and we're like, well, I can't understand that because we haven't done any novel sim- stimulus, and then you realise through social media or through conversations that've been taking place in the in the changing room that they've been out doing like a massive boxing session or they've been doing sprints or something, you know, and you're like, ah, okay, that's why. So, you know, rather than getting caught out like that, I think the more that you can embrace, um, embrace it and influence it, the better. And just to move it on, Nick, obviously this time of year now, we're, we're in, well, just about in July now. So a lot of clubs are, are either going back to pre-season or they've been, in, they've had a few weeks of pre-season going into some friendlies so, with your experience, what have you seen as as the approach that coaches take in this period, and what and what um, yeah, what different approaches have you seen with coaches going into a preseason period? Um, so, I, so I guess the approach will will definitely have changed because I think the the players have changed over the last ten fifteen years. So I think the and also the, the landscape of football has changed in that. <sighs> It's difficult to say there's actually an off-season for a lot of players. So I think the days of players taking six to eight weeks off, coming back in really bad shape, are kind of over. I think you still get one or two that might come in a little bit undercooked. But by and large, I think players recognise the importance of maintaining their fitness um, and and keep ticking over during during the summer, I can only think of one player that I've ever had a conversation with that was like, I've got six weeks, I've got six holidays, and this is what I'm doing. I'll see you at the start of pre-season. Um, but they were definitely the minority. Um, so I think players come into off into the pre-season in better shape because they've looked after themselves during the off-season. I think you also then have the other side where if you've got international players and lots of clubs will have that, even the mid to lower table teams will have international players out there from different countries that you've then got to be mindful that they've not really had a break at all. They might have sort of 10 days over that sort of four, six week period if they've gone deep into competition. So um, I think the approach is probably changing given those two groups. You've got players that are coming in that are already in, in good condition and then you're probably managing back players that maybe need a little bit more recovery and need to be managed through those first couple of weeks of pre-season. Um, I think, you know, there has sometimes and probably still is this idea that we've got to test every single physical metric uh, from a sports science and a medical perspective on day one. So you end up with these lengthy testing sessions and you know, your timeline on Twitter and Instagram just fills up with watching people doing loads and loads of tests. That's never really been something that I've aligned myself with. I think I'd rather just get the players back in and training and we'll monitor some metrics as part of their training. So training is testing so that we're not really missing a beat really. Why waste one, two days collecting loads of data unless you're going to use all of that? And I think a lot of departments don't use half of what they collect. So, uh, you know, a much more streamlined testing battery uh, and, and trying to integrate that into your, into your training rather than standalone sessions. Um, and, and then I guess it's just that gradual reintegration of fitness components with what takes place out on, on the grass in terms of the technical and tactical um, side of things. And I think, you're still going to get different uh, opinions on, on the most effective way to do that. Uh, you know, do you go straight into everything's with the ball, everything's small sided games, uh, you know, lots of change direction. I think that that has value, but then it also brings quite a lot of risks if, if players are coming back into it, or do you go for a slightly more traditional, what's viewed as a traditional approach where, you know, 
not as much football work in the first sort of seven to ten days and more of a, a gradual reintroduction to some of the volumes and, and linear work that you might get to establish some just some baseline conditioning before you then reintegrate more football um, related aspects. Um, I know Matt Green, who, who's now at the Premier League, I worked with him when I was at West Brom and we went through quite a lot of managers in, in the short period of time and he actually looked at each of the managers pre-seasons and which ones he, he felt were, were better than others and and you know it, you know it's, an, it's a it's a small kind of case study I guess but some of that more traditional linear type approach actually resulted in in less soft tissue injuries going into the season you end up with a full complement of players going in to the season you don't really want to be starting off with half your group out uh, with, with soft tissue injuries um, so yeah I think the, the approach has probably changed over, over time based on the way that players are probably more professional than they ever have been I always think it's fascinating this time of year because like you say you see all the clips online and, and at what everyone's doing in terms of the testing and then it causes conversations but sometimes people can get a bit arsy about things and, and <laughs> think that their way is the only way but like yeah. you say there's there's many different methods that you can take and approaches you can take this time of year isn't there yeah and it, so here's the thing so i've got on on my twitter on my sort of uh i don't know what they call it but you have a, you have a post that you stick at the top of your twitter timeline that always stays there um yeah. and i i've got on there about ignorance and ignorance is basically you know, people talking, keyboard warriors and, and people talking from a position where they don't actually understand what's going on. And that's what you see a lot of, Ben, is people going, oh, well, I can't believe they're doing that by Munich or I can't. I've been on the receiving end of it from, from certain high-profile coaches absolutely battering our pre-season at, at uh, West Brom when I was there. But actually, you know, going into that, going into our seasons, we had no soft tissue injuries. We had best player availability, you know, it's about understanding and at no point had that person shown the professional courtesy to actually speak to us about what we did and why we were doing it and what the coach's philosophy was so I think unless you actually understand what's going on at that club then you've got no right to, to comment on it because you're, you're speaking from a position of ignorance and you're just showing how ignorant you are so it of course if I'm working with Man City well obviously their pre-season is going to be very different to when I was working at West Brom. They've got a different raw material that they're working with. They've got a different coaching and playing philosophy. So you need to prepare your team in the manner in which they're going to go into that season. And, and that's what we do at West Brom. Our preseason probably wouldn't work with the calibre of player that you've got at Man City, but it was absolutely right for the players and the coaching style and the playing style that we had at that time. So I think that's what we have to be mindful of when we look at all this stuff on um Instagram and, and Twitter and social media and, and what's reported in the popular press. And again, I saw the headlines that came out about some of our pre-season training just weren't true. They were just factually inaccurate because, you know, someone hooks on to running a marathon every two days. It's just, it's just bullshit. You know, that's not what's happening. And, and if the total distance was a marathon, it wasn't, it was chunked up very differently to just going out and plodding. So yeah, I think, people would do well just to count to 10, have a little look at what's actually going on and try and think about the shoes in which the other coaches and support staff are walking and their environments and then make your, your judgments. But it's very easy to pass comment without knowing what's going on. I think that's one, my, one of my biggest hopes like in, in years to come is that we can actually put stuff out there and, and instead of people just jumping on it straight away, we can actually have some healthy discussions about it. And yeah. so I think that'll, that progresses things forward, doesn't it, rather than just shoot, trying to shoot people down straight yeah. away. Ben, I know when, I was at, when we was at West Brom, we went through a period where we, we started putting out sort of infographics about what the te- how the team trained and how they're working because we wanted to sort of engage the fans as well as uh, fellow sort of professionals about this is what we're actually doing. It's a little bit different. And, and I remember like a well-respected, someone that I would say is a, that I knew as a colleague and would be if, we put an inf- infographic out about, you know, sort of big numbers about how much load we lifted, how much distance we covered. And they were like, so what, what does this tell us? And I'm like, oh, yeah. like and started battering us for, for that. You know, does this impact on performance? And I'm like, we're just trying to, tell a story that actually professional football players do take care of their physical preparation outside of sport and it's 
it does seem that people have just love to jump down people's throats and have a have a right pop at them um, for, for no reason, really. Yeah, it's, it's the annoying side of social media, isn't it? Because then that stops a lot of clubs or practitioners wanting to share things because they, they realise that, it, that it's not necessarily the right people seeing it, is it? And, yeah. and appreciating it. Yeah, yeah, it's... It's interesting, and it's even when you listen to commentators and pundits talking about, oh well, I think I've oh, seen it in the Women's World Cup. Oh well, I just think the England women weren't as fit as the, as the US. It's like, you, based on what? Based yeah. on what are you like? Have you, do, have you looked at the training regimes of both teams? Do you know what they've gone into that? Do you know the raw materials that each squad are working with? Again, you're, you're speaking from a position of ignorance, and it's just the easiest one to come back with. Ah, oh, they look like they got leggy and tired towards the end. It may well have been the case, but you don't know that. So, like, just talk about stuff you can actually see taking place in the game rather than making assumptions. Yeah. Got a little bit rattled there. <laughs> I actually think the Lioness is doing a great job as well about putting stuff out about their training and that. But that is such a small little snippet of what they're doing as well isn't it so you yeah. see it you see them put these little videos out and they're great and it's great to see them training but then people would take that as the whole story and there's, there's a lot more to it yeah and, and you just have to look at the evolution of the, of the women's game and, and the women's game in England compared to the US and it, it's just like you, you, you're not you're comparing apples and oranges to a certain degree um, that let's give the program chance to fully develop and fully flourish and then make make some comments about it yeah, definitely. I wanted to take you into uh, into Dreamland now, Nick. So, <laughs> what what I was going to ask you is if you could implement anything in football. So maybe some it's something you use in other sports, and remove the fact of um, it might be affected by time or facilities or or money. For, for example, if they were no issue at all, what would you bring into the game? Um, so I think. Oh, something I would love to see, which I think is four-year cycles. <laughs> I'd love to. Go. That's the one thing that I liked about Olympic sports was you, you knew you knew what was going on. You you had a far greater level of continuity and consistency with your coaching and support staff because you knew you were building something at the end of four years. You still had tournaments and competitions that you go through each year, and, and there would still be successes and failures throughout that but you, you kind of unless I mean unless the coach dropped an absolute massive bollock you knew that that was the coach that you had so you had chance to um, figure out their coaching philosophy their playing style how they want to integrate sports science and medicine and I think that's probably the one thing that would be great to see in professional football and I'm, and I'm sure there are some clubs that have that um, and I think you see when you have consistency and, and a way of doing things within a club and an identity, I guess, um, it, it's really beneficial. So I, I think, you know, if we could have a little bit more continuity and, and support staff and coaches not having to look over their backs every after every sort of loss, um, that would be amazing. But I think Pandora's box is open now, so that's going to be – it's going to be – not going to be the norm uh, anymore. So continuity would be good. Um, and I think I saw – some, when I went out to Australia and spent some time at AFL clubs, what I really liked, and, I, and again, I think we've probably lost the ability to have this in, in professional football here, but it's much more of a community-type club with a much closer identity to the local community and the players because you, you kind of draw the players from your area. So it's probably what football was like in the 40s, 50s, 60s where it was local lad, plays for local team forever. And I, I just think Walking around the clubs, there was just this real sense of history and you had your shirt and you knew the 10 players that had worn that shirt before you and you, you, you know, some of those players were still kind of coming in as a club ambassador. And I, and I think that connection is, it's not tangible, but it, it, I think it's really influential in the, the way you act and the way you train. Um, I think we've probably lost that because you've got such a fluid um, transfer market and players coming in, parachuting in and out of, of clubs and, and coaching staff and support staff parachuting in and out. I think it's difficult to maintain that continuity and create that. Um, I'd, I'd try and close the transfer window before the season starts. Uh, just, I think that just kills you 
you know, when you've got players thinking they're leaving, possibly not leaving, you know, then new players rocking up as the season's already started. I just think it makes it very challenging for the support staff as well as the coaching staff. Um, I like, I like the idea again, going back to the AFL where, you know, you can't just buy players in left, right and center. You have to work with a development squad and develop the players within your club and build them into the, the sort of the player that you need to be in the first team. So I like, I like that, that idea. That would be cool. Um, I think if we could get everyone sitting together, that would be good in the building. So I know at Man City's Academy, they do this. So they sit in their age groups. I know. So all the staff for each age group sit together on a, on a large desk. And I think that's good. It just too many clubs have physical barriers between coaching staff, technical staff, sports science, sports medicine. I think if you could just like put everyone together, you you'd get way better conversations and better understanding. Um, be quite nice if people built gyms that were designed by the sports science and medical team um, and, and built those facilities rather than some sort of afterthought uh, the amount of amount of facilities that I've been in that have been repurposed as afterthoughts is you know probably more more often than not that's the case so I think if designers of training grounds actually spoke to the people that are going to use it that would be that would be a benefit and you might get some decent facilities then and decent uses of space um, and I think it's probably starting to happen more, but really embracing the use of um, psychology in within a team and not just with players, but again, looking at the psychology of the support staff and how they integrate and how they work. Um, I know when I worked with the women's basketball team, we had support staff that came out and worked not only with the players, but also evaluated the coaching staff and the, and the tech support staff and gave us advice about how we were working, how we were communicating. So I think psychology is probably still one of those last barriers and, and frontiers that there's still uh, a stigma, I guess, attached to it if you're seeing a psychologist because it, it may be seen as a sign of weakness, whereas I think it would be really useful to have that firmly embedded within a, within a club setup. Uh, so those would probably be my, my main things. Oh, that quality, mate. And a, a lot of that, I think, is a case that if, if clubs hear that, that, I think it would not be the hardest thing, especially some of them, for clubs to actually implement some of those as well. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, again, a lot of it's difficult because you, you, a lot of clubs can just buy the best players. But I think what you see at somewhere like the AFL is rather than the, the investment doesn't go into players as such because you can't just buy the best product. So what they then look at is go, okay, coaching staff, sports science and medicine staff have got to be absolutely amazing because they're the ones that are going to develop this kind of raggedy round the edges player into an absolute world beater. And I think that's where sometimes it's interesting when you're at a club, you see the amount that gets paid for a player to come in. And obviously they could be very influential, but if you're thinking about long-term longevity and success of a club, having a well well structured well funded coaching and support staff is has got to be the way forward um, and it would be good to see the level of investment doesn't even have to be the same because to be honest <laughs> you could probably run a off of one transfer you could probably run a sports science and medicine team for about 10 years mm-hmm. um, so i think that that's the key that, that that's really important no, oh, that's great, mate. That's, I think there's been some top information in there, Nick. Um, where can anyone keep up with what's going on with you, mate, in terms of speaking engagements, the resources, the books you've got out there? Yeah. Um, so Twitter, Coach Nick G. Um, Instagram, I'm Z-E-R-O and then 226. Um, long story as to why that's the case. Um, then website is nickgrantham.com. It's going through a bit, bit of a, uh, an update. It's, it, got out of date over the last five years. So I'm sort of currently updating that. So that would be probably be a bit easier to navigate. And there's, there's all sorts of things on there, but uh, some blog posts and, and what have you, my random sort of thoughts about training. Um, and then if people are interested in the books, I've got the strength and conditioning Bible, which uh, was, was written for basically my wife uh, and the end user, but I do get nice feedback from physios and strength and conditioning coaches. Cause again, I've probably written it in 
in a non-academic style. Uh, and then the one that I self-published is for anyone looking to get into performance sport, although it's called the, um, uh, You're Hired, How to Become a Strength Coach. I think there are, there are lessons that can be transferred across professions. Uh, so it's a really good book to help with career planning and career advice. And also that book, all the proceeds go to, to charity. Um, so, yeah, you buy it because it's, it's got some good information, but the benefit is you're also giving some money to uh, some good charities there as well. So that's, that's where people can find me, I guess. Oh, that's great. And I know, to tie into the, the Your Hire book, I know you did the podcast with Pacey, and that was, yeah. I, I really enjoyed that. I think there's loads of great um, tips and for, for any coaches, really, not just young coaches, to get into the game. And I, I recommend people to go and uh, check that one out as well. Yeah, that, that was an interesting one, Ben, actually, because I did that, and the overwhelming response that I got, which I, which I wasn't really expecting, was people were saying, oh, we just loved your honesty. Yeah. And, and I'm like, well, I just sort of, well, I just said what, what actually has happened and what I believe. And I think that just goes to show the amount of superficial BS that can surround our profession where people are frightened to actually open up and say, well, this is what I've done. This is what I've got right. This is what I've got wrong. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting that people found that like a really honest interview. I was just like, well, I was just being myself really. Um, so yeah, it, it's got a good response that one. No, there's some top takeaways in there, mate. And uh, hopefully people are taking a lot of information from this one because I certainly have a full page of notes here, so I'll have a read back through them. But thanks a lot for your time today, Nick. I really appreciate it. Cheers, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Speak to you soon, mate. Cheers. Massive thank you to Nick for coming on the show and giving up his time. It was great to speak to him. I think some of the biggest takeaways for me where he talked about planning for chaos I'm sure many people that work in football will know um, exactly what that means. And also, um, I think the biggest takeaway was where he talked about nudging the culture along, that the culture is changing in football. Um, it's it's going to take time, but we, you have to, as practitioners, we have to nudge it along, make sure it's moving in the right direction. He also, when I spoke to him about what he would want to take into football, if... if um, there was no obstacles. He talked about the four-year cycles and also um, staff consistency or continuity at clubs, um, which I'm sure we all could refer to. And it would be great to see that clubs sticking sticking by staff, um, and hopefully that will happen in the future. You can follow all Nick's work. He's got some great blogs on his website and all the work that he does over at nickgrantham.com, and also he's on Twitter at Coach Nick G. Please subscribe and share this episode. It'll be great to um, get as many people listening to it as possible. I've got a feeling this is going to be a popular one. So um, we'll see if it's reaching the numbers that, that we hit with Darren Burgess. And also, please take two seconds out of your day and just head over to iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. Um, just mention which episode you've enjoyed the most, which guests you've enjoyed the most, um, and your biggest takeaways so far from the podcast we've been putting out. That'd be amazing if you could do that. Thank you again for listening and we'll speak to you again next week.